welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you need a Bible, they're back here in the, in the back, and I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, or if you don't have one, um, you can take one. It wouldn't be stealing, because I'm going to offer it to you. You can take one of the ones that we offer, but uh, I want to invite you to get those out. We're going to be in 1 John, and just a quick review, we're in uh, week three of a series called 1 John, in, uh, or studying 1 John, and creatively titled 1 John. Thank you. And uh, um, so we're in that. And just a couple of things that we've learned thus far, written by John the Apostle, we assume, uh, sometime around the turn of the first century, 90 to 100-ish AD. So just so you have it on the, the, the landscape of time. Um, a couple of things that you should know about this. It was a letter written to a, a number of churches. So not a particular person, not one particular church or one person, but a number of people who lived in an area called Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey. Uh, John was writing to refute... Um, a group of people that become known as the cessationists. This is a group of people who are trying to kind of teach a different gospel, so to speak, and John writes to refute these people. And two heresies that we've talked about that, that specifically John was refuting, does anyone know them off the top of their heads? This is Bible Trivia 101. What did you say? Gnosticism, but what did you say? Oh, okay, or docetism. Yeah, I thought you, you put something else together and I was going to really make fun of you, but... But no, uh, yeah, Gnosticism and Docetism. So two, two heresies that the early church refutes, and John certainly is a part of that. Now, for our teaching this morning, we're going to be just in the, the first chapter. Before we get there, I should, I should have you know, the first people who wrote down any theories about light were the ancient Greeks. Um, and, and we have a lot to, to be thankful for as far as the Greeks go, but uh, these were some of the first people to write down theories of light. A guy named Pythagoras, does anybody recognize that name? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Pythagorean theorem, that's correct. Well done, way to go. Pythagoras actually wrote, uh, he, he, he thought that light um, emanated from the eye of a human and then went out into the world and hit objects. Um, obviously, we know th- this far in advance that this is backwards. Um, Epicurus actually wrote down for, uh, that, that light comes into, reflects, refracts off of things in the world and comes into our eyes. Uh, the Greeks were some of the first people to write down or diagram that uh, light sometimes would hit a smooth object and reflect. Or if it passes through a translucent object or transparent object, it would bend, right? So like when light passes through water. These were the first people to write these things down. At about the turn of the millennia, so about a thousand or so, the Arabs were some of the first people to write or to document the correct sort of um, functions and parts of the eye and how it worked, that light would refract off of things in the world, come into our eye, and our our ophthalmologist up here, Hans, would tell you all of the ways in which that happens, and I'm actually uh, privileged to spend some time with Hans. He does some crazy surgeries. If you want some interesting stories, talk to Hans about some of the surgeries he's done. Awesome. I mean, amazing stuff. But these guys were some of the first people to write down how the eye actually worked. Now, the dominant metaphor for light, pretty much up until the 1800s or so, was that light is a wave. So the way that people talked about light, the way that scientists understood light, was that it was a wave form. And it really was solidified by a guy named Newton and another guy named Maxwell. Maxwell introduced the idea of electromagnetism, and we get from this like electromagnetic radiation, all kinds of other things. But he offered this idea that light actually was a combination of two things. It was a combination of uh, electric and magnetic fields, and then actually he was able to put it in a vacuum and determine that when in a vacuum, light travels at the speed of 
light, which of course is 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. Well done, science people. Now, so this is the dominant way that people think about light. Up until, of course, our famous um, scientist named Albert Einstein. And Einstein asked the question, like, what if you could ride a beam of light? I think this is where Metallica got some of their inspiration, right? Ride the lightning. Thank you very much. By the way, in case you were wondering, what is it that we're listening to? That was the Beastie Boys, friends, during our... Yes, 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 that was the Beastie Boys. So Einstein asked, like, what if you could ride a beam of light? Or, or what if you could travel, what if you could run so fast that you were running at the speed of light? Would light stand still? He asked these kinds of questions. And, and all of these questions and a couple of other crazy scientists um, offered this idea called the quantum theory of light. And, the, and this is big on the landscape of light science because at this point, for one of the first times, the idea of light as a particle actually became something that was accepted by the scientific world. And here's how it works. Every atom, as you know, has a nucleus, right? And every atom has electrons that are orbiting the nucleus. For example, hydrogen has one electron. Helium has two electrons. Aluminium, thank you for all of you. Brits out there, has 13 <laughs> electrons orbiting the nucleus. And these electrons have a very particular and specific and repeatable and predictable pattern that they travel around the nucleus. Now, what happens when you energize an atom is that the electrons move, and when the energy is taken away from that atom and they sort of fall back to their orbit, they release a little packet of energy, also known as a photon. And a photon becomes very important in light because this is, as, at least as far as the whole idea of light as a particle, photons are really the scientific, um, what would you say, the scientific way that we would talk about the process when you energize an atom and then the, the electrons fall back into orbit. Now, even in modern day science, light is a bit of an anomaly. It's a little bit of a mystery. It's wave, it's particle, it's energy, and it's predictable, and yet there are so many things that we're still finding out about light, that we're still learning about light. In fact, in 1999, at Harvard, smart folks at Harvard, love them, in 1999 at Harvard, there were some scientists that were actually able to slow down light to 38 miles per hour by shooting it through this, like, this, um, they call it Bose-Einsteinian condensate, this, this matter. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, who comes up with this stuff, man? These people are nuts. But they're able to slow down light to 38 miles per hour. So we're still learning all kinds of things about light. Now, why does any of this matter as it relates to First John? Other than the fact that DC Talk is putting a reunion tour together, and I wanted us all to be able to sing, I want to be in the light as you are in the light. Other than that... What does this have to do with 1 John chapter 1? If you would, turn to your scriptures to 1 John. Stand, I would ask, if you can, as we read God's word. This is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. It says this. This is, the, this is America. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to push pause. Focus. Thank you, Betsy. My kids, Dahlia, I, every time we watch, uh, we, we, we had a stint of watching American Idol, and so every now and again, Dahlia will be walking around the house, and just out of nowhere, she'll do, this is American Idol. <laughs> okay, focus, focus. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. 
God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Pray with me. God, as we turn to your scriptures, uh, we would ask, I would ask that you might illuminate them um, to us, that you would give us eyes to see Uh, ears to hear, hearts that are open to what you might be doing in our midst. Um, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, I pray. And God's people said, amen. You can have a seat if you would. So one of, I would say one of, if not the primary metaphors that the scripture uses to talk about God and God's people is the metaphor of light. So let's jump in here. We have three verses to get through, and it's going to take me about two hours, so buckle up. I'm just kidding. It won't take me three hours. Why does John say God is light? Or when John says God is light, what does John mean? He says God is light. In him there is no darkness. So what exactly does he mean? Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, please. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be uh, jumping around here, so get your fingers ready. Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read two different, two different sections of, of Genesis chapter 1. The first will be the first five verses, and then we're going to jump down to verse 14. So read with me. Genesis chapter 1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was empty, formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, verses 6 to 8, it goes on, and God separates the water from above from the water that was below, right, the sky, and that was day 2. And then in verses 9 to 13, God creates, or he gathers the water under the sky, and he creates land and sea, and then he adds on to that uh, uh, plants, right? We're doing the garden this year. We think that's cool. Uh, So God creates plants on day three. Now, this is day four. Read Genesis chapter uh, one, verse 14. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was morning, evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Does anyone notice anything peculiar about what we just read? Maybe you could say it this way. There was light, and then there was light. Right? There was light, and then there was light. Verses 1 to 5, God says, let there be light, and separates the light from the darkness. And then again in verse 14, God says, let there be light, like there wasn't already light. But somehow, I think what the author's getting at in Genesis, and I think what John's tapping into when he says God is light, is that there is a qualitative difference between the light of Genesis 1 to 5 and the light of Genesis 14 to 19. There's a difference between these two lights. They're not the same. 
And in fact, when John says in 1 John 1, God is light, in him there is no darkness, I think it's safe for us to assume that John is not calling God a star, the moon, the sun, or any of the other things that God created in Genesis 1, 14 to 19. But in fact, what John is referring to is the, is the light of Genesis 1, 1 to 5. There is this divine light in Genesis 1 through 5 that is different than the light that we see, the categories by which we understand light in our world. Genesis makes it pretty clear, and I think what John talks about when he says this, God is light, that's what he's getting at. Deeply connected to the very nature of God, the essence of God is this idea of light, right? This divine light of Genesis 1 through 5, it separates and it drives away darkness and anything associated with it, death, desolation, isolation, loneliness. This divine light of Genesis 1 to 5, it, 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 it drives it away, it moves it out, it has no, darkness cannot be in its presence, it, it, it renders it useless, it renders it obsolete, now, for all the poets and all the artists, the contemplatives, the mystics among us, I want to offer this next piece, not because it solves anything, but because I think this is fascinating, right? Look at, turn back to 1 John, if you will, back to where we were, 1 John chapter 1. And the first part of 1 John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Now, if you, if you want to write these, these verses down, we'll just jump to them or you'll see the references on the screen. So this is what John says about light or about God. He says, we've seen it, we've touched it, we've heard it, right? He's talking about Christ. Christ is divine. We covered that last week. Christ is God. So if God is light, then we can make the connection, okay? This is what John says about Jesus, that we have seen this light, we have touched it, we, have, we can approach it. Now, if you were to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, it actually says that God dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in unapproachable light. So we have John saying that we've seen this light. We, 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 we've touched it. We've heard it. We, we can, it's there. And Timothy's saying God dwells in unapproachable light. Right? It's this paradox. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 33, and I'll do that if you want to join me. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. This is the same story. This is the Israelites coming out of, e uh, out of Egypt, right? We call it the Exodus, prince of Egypt. In verse 11, it says this, and the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man would return, or I'm sorry, as, as, a, as, a, as a man speaks with his friend. So the author of the Exodus, the author of the Torah, says that Moses would speak with God face to face like a friend would speak to his friend. Not eight verses later, look what it says. Verse 20. But he said, or but, he said, you cannot, and this is God speaking, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Interesting. So Moses can speak with God face to face as if he were with his friend, and yet God says, if anyone sees my face, they die, right? Indiana Jones. The scriptures seem to speak of light and God in this paradoxical fashion, as if it's, God is unapproachable and yet, at the same time, illuminating. It, 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 it's the, the way by which we can see, figuratively and met, metaphorically and, and um, in real. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder that science 
is really actually telling us the same thing. If you were to uh, look up on the interwebs relativity theory, and, and I, don't, I don't actually know all this. I, le- I learned this from my friends and books. Um, but relativity theory tells us that no matter how fast we're approaching light or how fast we're moving away from light, it is doing the same in relation to us. So no matter how fast we're approaching light, it's moving away from us at the same speed. Basically what that says is scientifically speaking, light is literally unapproachable. It doesn't matter how fast you move towards light, it's moving away from you at the same rate. Light in and of itself is unapproachable and yet the very thing by which we see. Right? It's a paradox. It's both. And so this is the nature of light. And John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, and this is trippy, right? Verse 6 of of 1 John says this. If we claim to have fellowship with him, the light, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Remember, John's refuting a group of people here, the cessationists, who are saying certain things. They're saying, you can follow Jesus, or or we follow Jesus, and yet their lives would tell a different story, right? John says, "If, if you claim to walk in the light, if you claim to be in fellowship with the light, and yet live that way, or live whatever way they were living, then they then you're a liar and you actually don't walk in the light, but you live in darkness. So John says, These people, they're not living in the light. So the million-dollar question is what, at least for me, what does it mean, what does John mean when he says to fellowship with the light? What does he mean to say if you walk in the light, if you fellowship with the light? Let me say it this way. Divine light, the one that we're talking about in Genesis 1, 1 to 5, divine light and darkness can occupy the same space. Divine light and darkness can occupy the same space. Turn to Exodus chapter 10. Again, this is the story of the Exodus. This is Moses, one of the plagues of Egypt. And it says this in verse 21 of Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. What does it mean to feel darkness? No one, or so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet the Israelites had in the places, had light in the places that they lived. Divine light and darkness can occupy the same space. It's important to see in this text fellowshipping with the light, being in the light has nothing to do with proximity. It has nothing to do with where you are. It has nothing to do with geography. It has nothing to do with how close you are to the light or how far away you are from the light. Rather, being in the light in Exodus 10 has to do with a spiritual state of being. Friends, remember this. Remember, we've, we've gone over this before. So if you're new, this is new to you. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in. Egypt, and Israel, and many other, many other geographical locations in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, are, yes, geographical locations, but more than that, they're symbolic of something. 
And in this case, Egypt and Israel are symbolic states of being. They're spiritual states that one can, re- that can participate and live life through and in. Egypt literally means the hidden place or the, um, the narrow or hidden place where God cannot be worshipped. Israel literally means those who struggle with God and are not overcome. So Israel and Egypt, while they are locations on a map, in this text becomes keys, ciphers, to understanding what does it mean to be in the light? What does it mean to fellowship with the light? It has less to do with geographic locations and more to do, I would submit, with a spiritual state of being. To experience light in in Exodus chapter 10 has everything to do with how do you see the world? Who do you recognize or by what do you recognize the world's existence? Where does this all come from? How did it happen? And in Exodus chapter 10, it all comes down to Yahweh. Are you an Israelite or are you an Egyptian? Right? Because if light in this text has nothing to do with geographically how close you are to it, because they're literally in the same place and experience Two very different realities. What does John mean when he says you can fellowship with the light? You can walk in the light. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul actually takes this idea that started in the Torah, and he takes it a click further. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, right? The Jews. Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through Christ, through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two one, right? These two different realities. He's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, Jesus, his purpose was to create in himself one new man, and out of this, and in this body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which put to death their hostility. Paul takes the same kinds of metaphors, right? Israel, not Israel. And he takes it a step further, and he actually connects it. If you go back to Romans, Paul connects it to two different states of being, two different people, right? Adam and Christ. Again, people, yes, For sure, Jesus. Now, we won't get into the other piece of that. Adam and Jesus. Two people, and he connects this idea, this light, darkness, to the same Adam, Jesus. Egypt, Israel. What What I'm trying to get you to see is that when John says, you can walk in the light, you can fellowship with the light, you can be in the light, It's not a physical light that we're talking about. It's not lights from a spotlight or lights from the sun or the moon. It's this this divine energy and presence of, of God himself 
that we can fellowship with that. We can actually be in relation to that. And to do that is to see the world a different way. To be a part of that is to experience the world in a different way. It's to experience the world, I would argue, in the way that we were created to experience it. Right? It's to be an Israelite, not an Egyptian. It's to be in Christ, not in Adam. Now, look at this juicy little morsel of verse 7 that John ends with, at least will end with today. John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Notice, look at your text. What do we have fellowship with in 1 John 7? With what? Come on, friends, don't be shy. With one another, right? When I read this, I was like, certainly it's, you would assume that you'd have fellowship with God, that you'd have fellowship with the divine, right? But what John says is if you walk in the light, if you have fellowship with the light, you have fellowship with one another. Maybe I could say it this way. Fellowship begets fellowship. Friends, what John is getting at is when we have fellowship with God, when we have a connection to God, when we are in relationship with God, this divine light, so to speak, we have the capacity for something. Let me ask it in a different way. What happens when we are not in Christ? What happens when we are of Adam? What happens if we are Egyptians instead of Israelites? Do you remember what it said in Exodus 10? when Moses held out his hand over the, over the land and darkness came, like darkness that you could feel, what did it say about the Egyptians? That they could not see one another, right? Now remember, we're, we're, we're talking about darkness here, and, and, and in one sense, this was a literal darkness, but in another sense, this was a very spiritual thing. And their ability to see the other, their neighbor was taken away from them. They couldn't see one another. What does John say happens when we fellowship with the light? We have fellowship with one another, right? The contrary of that is what happens when we don't? What happens when we are apart from Christ? What happens when we are outside of this reality? What happens when we're Egyptians or of Adam? The very thing that you and I were created to experience. The essence of what it means to be human is to relate, is to be in relationship with the other. To be in relationship with God, to be in, this is what it means, this is hardwired in our DNA. And so when we are outside of fellowship with Christ, when we are outside of the light, when we're Egyptians or of Adam, what we lose is the capacity to relate. We can't see one another. We can't see our neighbor. But when we're in fellowship with Christ, we have the capacity, some might say reborn, regenerated, given back to, restored, the ability to see each other. Now, this is flawed and faulty because we have this dual thing going on. Paul talks about it, right? We have one foot in one, one space and one foot in another space. 
Let me close with this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says this. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now get this. And we, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, right? We who are experiencing a part of, in the midst of this divine light, in relationship to this divine light, when we behold this, we reflect the Lord's glory and we are transformed into his likeness. Right? What does Paul call Jesus? The second Adam? The perfect human? The prototype? The one? Neo? Okay, sorry. But Paul says we are transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, to the degree that we are in a relationship with God, we have the ever-increasing possibility. Right? This is what theologians would call sanctification, the process by which we are made into the likeness of Jesus. And as we are beholding, as we are in relationship to the light, then our capacity to see each other, to relate to one another in the way that we were intended to do it grows and is transformed into greater and greater degrees of glory. This is, this is the process by which we become more like Jesus. And I would submit to you the process by which we become the humans that we were, we were intended to be. I'm going to close here, and I'm going to actually ask we're going to try to turn off all the lights in the joke joint here. We did this one other time, and it was a disaster, but we're going we're gonna to try it again. So, friends, <clears throat> this book called the Bible is a very complex thing. It's very nuanced, and there's all kinds of authors, different people, writing different things. And sometimes it's really difficult to interpret. Sometimes it's really difficult to get to the bottom of. But every now and again, we have these moments where the whole thing just kind of comes down to this idea. Where if you could sum it up, if you could create a Reader's Digest or a Cliff Notes, or and I think that this idea is one of those moments that God is light that there is a qualitative distinction between the light of Genesis 1 to 5 and the light of Genesis 14 to 19 and the essence of who God is is wrapped up in this paradoxical mysterious notion of light and the scriptures tell a story of a group of people may we call them humans, fumbling around in the dark in so many ways, grasping for something to light the space up so that we can see. And I wonder how many of us, for the better part of our lives, or maybe even still, 
are living like this, where we see shadows of things, where the ability to see you is taken away. It's not available to me. And we fumble around in the dark. We make a mess of it. And I want to challenge you this morning, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, by faith, to trust Christ. To trust in Christ's death and his resurrection. The means by which we become a partaker in, one who fellowships with the light, the divine light of God. And as we become recipients of and relators to this divine light, Paul says that we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We become more like Jesus. And whether that's for the first time or the 250th time, what does it mean for you today to trust Christ and in doing so participate in, respond to this invitation of God to be in the light, to be a partaker of, to be one who receives this light. Because the, the story of Genesis tells that we were created in this, this God's image. We were created to reflect this light into the world. And so, I challenge you this morning, whatever that means for you, whether you have said yes to Jesus already or you're trying to figure it out, what does it mean for you to walk in the light, to be in relationship to the God who is described as light. Maybe as we close, I'll invite Ben and the band up and just uh, as they do that, give you an opportunity to just contemplate, to think about that question. What does it mean for you to, to have fellowship with, to be in relationship to this God who is described as light. This unapproachable, magnificent, mysterious thing that at the same moment makes everything available to us. The ability to see. God, I pray that as we um, consider, as we meditate on, as we maybe even press into some of the, the paradox, the uncertainty, the mystery of who you are and how this all works. I pray that by your spirit in this moment right now, God, that you would make yourself known to us, that you would make yourself present to us. That as we sing these songs, as we make a conscious effort to fill our hearts with that which is light, that you would fill us up that you would transform our hearts and make us into the people we were meant to be. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity 
for my spin-off. And we'll see you next time.